Today is Sunday, May 24th. The Browns and I have just returned from the left coast. We were exploring that area in the hopes of a church plant at some point in the future, and we invite you to pray for us. I want you to know that this ministry, LCM and the One Association, will stand behind your vision to advance the kingdom. That's not something that you find everywhere, but it is something that is us. In fact, this church was named Life Changing Ministries because we always believed we would be a family of ministries. We are on the offensive. We're on a mission to reclaim this planet for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. This can only be done through generational commitments. It's the only way that we know how to do it. The work that has to be done is so expensive that it requires a grandfather and a father and a grandson and great-grandsons that do not lose the vision that God has given them and they dedicate themselves to its completion, holiness or die trying. Speaking of, while I was on the plane, you know, I wanted to renew my mind. Seattle and... Portland, well, I needed to renew my mind. I wanted to get back on level ground. I wanted to hit the throttle. wanted to build some holy momentum. I'd been in a land that is governed so poorly that its defining features are homeless degenerates, palpable fear, and the most ridiculous, restrictive intrusion by government I've seen anywhere in the United States into your normal lives. I wanted to bathe in the Word. I wanted a, a full body bath in the Word. This gave me the opportunity to receive revelation today. This morning we're going to introduce some building blocks that will be furthered on Monday nights. They're going to be furthered in the sermons that are coming. This morning, all we'll be able to do is lightly touch on a couple of principles, but I think you'll find them sufficiently engaging to spark new areas of study in your life. Before we get into what that is, I did want to take a minute. I wanted to say publicly that what Justin and Judah did in the foundations teaching this last Monday on First Chronicles 17. If you were there, give a hallelujah. hallelujah. I found it masterful. I found it moving. I thought that they magnificently displayed the beauties of God's Word. Amen. It's not every day that you can hear teachings that are two hours in length that go by like minutes. That was very well done. If you are missing foundations, I understand. It's supposed to be a sacrifice to be there. The kind of thing that you'd get a babysitter for or make a special allowance for. I simply want to tell you that those that have faithfully attended that meeting for a decade, well, their scholarship of the word tends to surpass that of the average pulpit. Those that don't, you will grow. You just won't grow full throttle. Additionally, I got a chance to listen to Wednesday's message by Pastors Wade and Matthew. It was on the topic of momentum. 
Oh, come on, man. That was solid. That was satisfying. That was spiritually empowering. I want to build some momentum in the house. I couldn't help but notice that they started out with something that Keith said, that's science. When I heard him talking about mass times velocity is momentum, I didn't go back to my eighth grade physics class. Instead, I started to think about the process of salvation. I have a slide for you that came to mind. When you stare at this slide, on the left-hand side in the column, you see 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Oh man, I'm talking about being free from the penalty of sin. I'm talking about being saved. This is what they determined was mass. When you're a new creation, then in the middle column, if you look at 1 Peter 1.9, right in the middle, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Man, this is the kind of velocity that the spirit of holiness helps you pick up. When you get that mass and that velocity, it carries you forward in momentum, which is really what 1 John 2.28 is. And now, dear children, continue in Him. What do we do in Him? Continue in Him so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed. The whole process that they were describing is a spiritual momentum that will carry you through your mistakes. It'll mow down mountains of opposition in front of you. When you've been putting the Word into practice and being fueled by the Spirit as long as some of the families have in here, Man, even on an off day, yesterday's momentum will push you right through it. You're just not going back to what you were anymore. You got too much momentum. The thing that I love about momentum is really something we'll hint at today. It's that third column. You are not just saved. You are sanctified. When you get saved and the spirit of holiness is moving you into sanctification, it's because momentum is going to carry you right into glorification. The church of Jesus Christ is not a ticket to go to heaven. It's something altogether different. Momentum is going to carry us into higher and higher goals, and we want to fuel it. But this morning, our title, our topic for today, is going on the offensive, star power. Star power. Somebody say star power. Y'all going to have to help me out this morning. It's quite an endeavor what we've decided to preach on. This will not be your grandmother's Bible study. Captain Colgate can lead people into the blatantly well-known and talk to them about the champions that he hopes they are and knows they're not. This morning, we are going to talk to you about biblical truth. We're going to talk to you about a reality that we have to engage with. And when you do, it will engage with you. We're going to be in Ephesians 1, and we're going to start in the 18th verse. Just let me know you're there when you're there by saying star power. Some of you are fast. It's so good to be in a place where people are not spiritually distancing. We walked into a hotel and a young lady was trembling. Where'd y'all come from? The great and free state of Texas. What are you doing here? We are children of the Most High God and we thought you could use some help. 
Uh-huh. I have elderly parents. They're at high risk. Honey, you're at high risk. And we are no threat. The church of Jesus Christ is the healing of the nations. She was terrified to be in contact with another human being. The schemes of the devil are legion. And the power of God is the answer to them all. Are you in Ephesians 1.18? I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you. Doesn't that sound like the beginning to a pretty good prayer? How many Christians have no idea of the hope to which they're called? They have a newborn faith, a premature faith, an ICU neonatal faith. I've been born, that's all there is. Try to stay alive. This is not Paul's prayer for the church. The hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I want you to take that in for a minute. It's one of the 12 gates that many of you carry around in your pocket. You are his inheritance. He may be your inheritance, but he says to you, you are his inheritance. That statement is deeply rooted in the Tanakh in ways that most Christians have not begun to understand. God chose one nation above all other nations and said, that one is mine. And the book of Ephesians is explaining the mysterious inclusion of people who were not Israeli in that destiny. You are his inheritance. God hopes to inherit something. We better figure out what that is. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparable, incomparably great power for us who believe. His power for us who believe or trust. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms. Far above. Come on, somebody say far above. All rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. Man, there is more packed into those three verses than you can possibly imagine. We've heard them enough that we just kind of lump it together in our ever-increasing simplification of the Scripture, dumbing it down. We simply see God in heaven. Some of you mistakenly think the devil is in hell. And this is the extent of what we think of as spiritual powers. I want to highlight some things for you as we move forward. If you're the kind that take notes, there are three issues at hand. We're going to talk about inheritance. We're going to talk about power. And we're going to talk about Christ as the ultimate model. By the end of the message, we will have discussed all of those things, but not necessarily in that order. For now... I simply want you to know you are His glorious inheritance. His great power is for someone, for you who are His inheritance. He empowers you to become what He wants to inherit. When you want to know what that power is like, 
That power was demonstrated in. It was even exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms above all. Above what? Now when we say all, don't just lump it together. It's easy to do. You can go, oh, above all. So it doesn't matter what's in between. Consider what he says. Heavenly realms, plural. More than one. Realms, plural. Above all rule. How many kinds of rule are there? Above all authority. How many levels? Above all power. How many expressions of power? Above all dominion. How many forms of dominion are there? Above every title. How many titles are there? It's so easy to simplify this and not consider. But it would be a little bit like going, looking at the creation and going, well, there's man and there's the animals. Yes, that, that is true. But the kind of animals, the kingdom, the class, the order, the genus, the species, and whichever other one I just missed. Phylum, there we go. There is a beautiful complexity. And animals rank differently from other animals. When you think of lion, you think of... Wow. Go ahead, JJ. That's why she's been pregnant most years you've known her. <laughs> I was thinking lion is the king of the jungle. I mean, my point is, is that there's an association. You don't think of a meerkat the same way that you think of a lion. Look, I want to leave you with that for a minute. Are y'all capable of maintaining more than one train of thought? Yes. Just pretend you're watching your favorite episode and you'll be able to get more than one plot line, I promise. For now, I want to focus for a minute on the incomparably great power. See, there is nothing in all of creation that compares with the kind of power that we come to share in as we believe God's Word. As we are anointed with His Spirit and as we become partners in doing His will on earth. But there are some examples that are far better than others. Like when you think of power, you probably don't think of a geometro. You probably don't think of a Mercedes smart car, right? You might think of a Mercedes, but not the smart car. I have an example for you. Star power. Star power is fusion. Fusion is the process that powers the sun and all known stars. It's the reaction in which two atoms of hydrogen combine together or fuse together to form an atom of helium. In the process, the mass of the hydrogen is converted into energy. The sun and the stars, they do this by gravity. Where you at, Keith? What's that called? Science. <laughs> Look, for those of you that didn't come here for a physics lesson, those of you that do not want to be haunted by 7th grade memories of physical science even. Let me just tell you that when we say fusion, we're talking about the combining of something. What is more commonly known, commonly referred to, commonly utilized, is fission, which is the separation of nuclear material. Now fission, that separation, it doesn't occur naturally within God's design. He did not design in His kingdom, in all of creation, for fission to happen. It took man to do that. Fusion, fusion, the combining of things for the releasing of extraordinary power, 
That occurs naturally in the stellar realm all around us. In fact, it's the most powerful known source of energy. Fission, the separation, it, uh, it produces extremely radioactive particles. Like, think Fukushima. If that doesn't work for you, think Chernobyl. If that doesn't work for you, think Three Mile Island. If you don't know what any of those things are, then we're talking to a group of people that will understand it's the X-Men. <laughs> now, while fission produces radioactive material, fusion produces almost no waste, almost no byproduct. That's why the sun can be burning for millions of years and it's not putting off bad stuff. Unless you're pasty white. Fusion, the combining of nuclear material, is at least three and probably more like four or five times more powerful than anything in fission. Combining material releases much more energy than separating things apart. There's a benefit in separating sometimes. Sometimes you have to break away. But the most powerful thing that we can do in all of creation is unite with God's Word. Fuse with His Spirit. Get united in His plan. We need a kind of fusion currently only found amongst the stars. Now, don't turn to it because we're going to go lots of places today. But I suspect when we're talking about this incomparably great power, this is why Paul says things like in Romans 6, if we have been united with Him like this in His death, if we have been fused with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. There is a power that is released from unity with Christ. There is a power that happens when you, on a molecular level, are bonding with Him. You know, I want you to understand what we're talking about in the broadest sense, so I'm going to take a terrible risk. I'm going to take you on a biblical journey into the unseen realm that is never talked about in church, and yet is essential to actually understanding a Bible. Most churches could care less whether you understand it or not, Sit, soak, be saved, and tithe. That's the extent of it. We actually want to raise up men and women that look into the Holy Word of God, understand His destiny. They fuse with Him and unleash the power of God on this planet. I'll be disappointed if we don't send you on your own personal mission, whether it's local or it's across the globe. Our job is to prepare you for why God put you on the planet, not to sit and extort you constantly so that we feel like we're important. That's somebody else. You can find them everywhere. All you have to do is drive down this road. We're going to be in Job chapter 38. When you get to the book of Trabajo, open. Let your finger land on the first verse. And somebody say star power. Starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of a storm. I love this because God is speaking. See, many times in the book of Job, you have people that are speaking and you cannot take what they say at first value because you get to the last chapter and God says, these guys are idiots, they darken my counsel, they need to shut up. 
But here, God is speaking. I normally don't like to begin to form doctrine out of Job, but if God is speaking, you're pretty, you're pretty good there. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? It's like God had been watching, preaching on TV. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Yeah, you should look at that in the original text. That's very interesting. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Is it pretty clear we're talking about the creation? Verse 7. While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. According to these seven verses in Job, during the creation of the earth, the stars were singing together. He said, well, maybe that's just a literary device. Maybe it's personification. Well, how do you explain the second part of the verse? All the angels shouted for joy. The word is not actually angel. The word is benai ha Elohim. All the sons of God shouted for joy. It is an interpretive choice to call them angels. I'm not saying they're not angels. That's really tangible to my point. Stars may be angels. And angels may be the sons of God. The larger point is that before man was ever here, there is an association between God's created offspring and stars, angels, or benai ha Elohim, the sons of God. In other words, they were a part of God, not them, God creating everything that we see. And they sang for joy and they rejoiced at watching it happen. The sons of God are parallel to stars here. In the Tanakh, this is not all they do. They don't just sing. I mean, we all want an angelic choir. I mean, I married an angel who sings. Sexy grandma on the front row. Man, she stood out in Seattle. In fact, she started a fight with a homeless guy. And if Susie hadn't come to my rescue, I don't know what would have happened. We should go to Judges chapter 5, though. When we're in Judges chapter 5, say star power when you hit the 19th verse. Are, are you interested in this topic? Verse 19. Just so that you know, this is the story of Deborah and Barak. They go to war against Sisera. They defeat him. Look at what the recap of the battle is in Judges 5 verse 19. Kings came. They fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. But they carried off no silver, no plunder. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The recap of the battle is that it wasn't just going on on earth. The starry realm, the heavens were also at war, fighting for the people of Israel. And they won. The very same place that Revelation places the battle that people call Armageddon. This is the same valley where the heavens will fight again. But they don't just sing and fight. I mean, they're better than, 
you know, the Naval Academy. They, they do more than sing and fight. Are you ready for this? Let's go to Psalm 89. When you get to Psalm 89, somebody say, Star power. Now, when I say star power, I'm not talking about some broken down old celebrity trying to sell you a reverse mortgage on late night TV. I'm talking about something heavenly. I'm talking about fusing with the living God in a way that he releases something the world can't handle. By the way, do you know why we don't have fusion? Fusion has always been one of those things. If we have any, we have some engineers in the room. I don't know how many actual scientists we have. But fusion has always been one of those things that is perpetually 20 years away. Since I was a kid, in about 20 years, we'll have fusion. And every day you can readjust that date 20 more years. We're now in 2020 and it's still 20 more years away. They can't find a container to do this in. It would take a celestial container. It would take a magnificent, heavenly, powerful container. The kind that only God makes. The kind, uh, well... Let's keep listening. Are you in Psalm 89? Beginning in verse 5. The heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness too. In the assembly of the holy ones. Now you could think those holy ones. That they were Israelites. That they were a congregation like this until you get to verse 6. For who in the skies above, or who in the heavens, your translation may say, can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround Him. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Who in the skies? That's like saying, who among all of the stars can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? That word is also sons of God. It's something like Benai El, the sons of God. We think of everything in the heavens as an angel, and that's okay, maybe they are. Except the wording in Hebrew is pretty consistently sons of God. It's almost like he has a family of offspring from his creation in the heavens, and he had one on the earth. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you, he says. Nobody in the heavens compares with God. But there is a council of spiritual beings, of sons, B'nai Ha Elohim, that surround the Lord. And there is a continual and clear link between them and the starry realm. We don't have time to turn to it, but you might make a note in Ephesians 3.15. Paul makes the point... That whether the family is in heaven or on earth, there's only one place that we derive our fatherhood or our name. Oh, it's on the screen. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God is the author of all. He's the father of all. He's not speaking in this verse about your grandma who went to be with Jesus. He's actually talking about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
He's got family in both places. And many times in the Bible when we're looking at relationships between Jews and Gentiles, we may actually be mirroring something that is in the heavens. But we don't want to digress there. Jeremiah 23, 18. It says, but which of them? This is Jeremiah complaining about the prophets of his day. He's, he's upset because they're speaking without knowledge. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord? By the way, this word counsel that we keep coming across, it's not like an attorney. It's not a counselor. It's not a verbal thing. It is a governmental body. Counsel. In Hebrew, its root is actually the same as an interpretive key that we've learned, sowed. It means a confidential governing council. Something that you would have to be invited into. Something that somebody would have to let you sit in on because it's kind of members only. So Jeremiah is somebody with access to the governing councilship of God. He can sit and he can listen in on what God is saying in the heavenly council. And he's talking about the prophets of his day. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord? To see or to hear his word? I'm sorry, did you catch that? The word is in the council and can both be seen with the eye and heard with the ears. No matter how many benai ha Elohim we talk about, no matter how many created sons of God there are, whether you think of them as angels or anything else, the Word of God was with God in the beginning and the Word was God. The Word is elevated above all things, period. The Word is God. He could always be seen in the heavens. He could always be heard in the heavens. Now with that in mind, let me just roll back through some things that Paul said in Ephesians 1.18, Jesus had been raised above. Heavenly realms, plural. Above all rule, no matter how many kinds. Above all authority, no matter how many levels. Above all power, no matter how many their expressions. Above all dominion in all of its varied forms. Above every title. Are you beginning to get the impression that there are spiritual beings and Jesus is at the top of all of them? He is the visible image of an invisible God. But that is also not our point at this moment. Is the picture becoming a little more complex for you than you learned in your Sunday school with the felt board figures? It's about to get even more complex. Are you ready for it? You don't teach these things if you don't think your church is serious about study. I'm teaching them because I'm hoping to provoke you to some new ideas. And yet they're not new at all. They're simply being rediscovered. Job 4 and verse 18. If God places no trust in His servants, if He charges His angels with error, what? <laughs> You're probably told that angels didn't have free will. That's... Doesn't make it right simply because your Sunday school teacher said so. If he places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, sometimes in the book of Job, the word is angel. But many times, as in the first two chapters, guess what it is? Benai ha Elohim, spiritual beings, lesser sons of God. He charges them with error. Not only is there 
a hierarchy in the heavenlies. Not only are there multiple spiritual beings, and God is the most high God, the God that is so far above all, that He's the only one worthy to be worshipped, He has found error in the others. He's aware of it. He knows that it exists. And the point of this passage in Job is to say, if he knows that there's error there, don't think that you who live in clay houses that he can't see your error. Job 15, in verse 15. If God places no trust in His holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in His eyes, How much less man who is vile and corrupt who drinks up evil like water. I want you to understand Job is painting a picture for you. A picture that I only have time to skim over the top of. But it's that there is a problem in the heavens. And there is a problem on the earth. God has sons in the heavens. And He has sons on the earth. And He wants something that is pure. He wants something that is righteous. And He wants to fix both realms at one time because He he plans on uniting them. To understand where we're going next, 33 minutes into a message, I'm going to have to summarize a couple chapters of the Bible. Is that alright for you? So, in the very beginning, we get five chapters to give us who man is. How man fell. And who the federal head of the human race is. By chapter 6, the entire world, all mankind, is so full of evil that the inclination of his heart is wicked all of the time. And God is grieved. He decides to correct it with a flood. He's going to wipe out everybody except Noah and his family. Genesis 6 also tells us that there was a problem in his heavenly family. The very beginning of the chapter says the Benai Ha Elohim, the sons of God, came to the daughters of men and they produced these terrible things. You want to hear more about that? You have to come on a Monday night. A problem in the heavens, a problem on the earth, and so God acts to fix it. He wiped out all of humanity except eight people in all. Can I tell you that's a big solution? It must have been a very big problem. In Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, all deal with the flood and the repercussions from the flood. And in the ninth chapter, they get off of a boat and God begins telling this family, hey, you're going to spread out over all the earth. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to multiply. Same things that were said to Adam. Which is nice. Because in chapter 10, we find out how the nations came into being. In chapter 10, we find out who the sons of Ham, Shem, and Japheth are. There are exactly 70 of them. So that when we get to chapter 11, you will understand something. As men moved across the earth, supposed to spread out and image God's presence everywhere, they instead unified in a rebellion against God. The nations that were described earlier in the 10th chapter in the 11th chapter, have decided to make a name for themselves and build a tower that reaches into the heavens. What was that tower called? God intervenes again. Twice in 11 chapters, God has to answer from heaven to man's wickedness on the earth. He divides all mankind. 
He put languages between us so that I would never be able to talk to Susie in her native tongue. So that only an anointed elder like Boj could talk to any one of 12 nations. Most of us, language is a significant barrier. And God intended that because twice in man's history, in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, united against him. And he had to intervene from heaven. The 12th chapter of Genesis, continuing your story, is all about the calling of one man so that he could form one family, so that that family could become a nation. All the rest of the Bible is about that one man, his family, and the nation that came from them. The first 11 chapters were just telling you why God chose that man. He found fault with all other men. He found fault with that man too, but decided that he could work with him. With that in mind, let us go to Deuteronomy 32. Everybody in the room, if you don't mind. Even if you do mind. I only had eight hours of travel with the most frightened group of meerkats I've ever seen. You're not wearing a mask. No, I'm wearing a beard. (laughs) You should try masculinity sometime. It will help you. No, sir, I wasn't speaking to your wife. I was talking to you. (laughs) Hey, uh, Deuteronomy 32 in verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. When He divided all mankind. What does that sound like we're talking about? That sounds very much like the only event in Israel's... uh, I'm sorry, in biblical history... Up to this point, it could be talking about. There's only one time in which God had divided all mankind and apportioned them national inheritances. Seems to be that he's speaking about Genesis 11. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided up all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples. According to the number of the sons of Israel, except that the oldest manuscripts we have in the world, which are the LXX, don't say sons of Israel. They say, Benai Ha Elohim. He set up boundaries for the people, inheritances for the nation, divisions among all mankind, according to the number of spiritual beings in His council. Sons in His council. Say, well, that's just what the LXX says. Well... The Masoretic text is where we get this. That Y'all are going to fall asleep during this section. It comes into being somewhere around the 9th century A.D. Long, long, long time. 12, 1300 years after the LXX. But praise God, they made this discovery. <laughs> the Dead Sea Scrolls date to about the 1st century A.D. They, the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the passage, Deuteronomy 32.8, also say, Benai Ha Elohim. You can be absolutely sure that two of three of the oldest witnesses say sons of God here. So let me read that to you like that. When the Most High gave the nations, all the Gentiles, their inheritance, 
when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's portion, somebody say portion. portion. That word is strong, number 2506, Hilek. Ohad can correct it later. It literally has to do with the spoils of war. God had fought for Israel and considered Israel spoils of war. He says, for the Lord's portion, his spoils of war is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. That word inheritance is 5159, uh, something like Nachala. According to the complete word study dictionary, the word implied property that was given by means of a will or as a heritage. God picked a specific place on the planet and a specific people that were the product of His warfare with other spiritual beings and said, they are mine. Amen. That's a really interesting thing since Ephesians 1.18 clearly says that you are the Lord's inheritance. Colossians says that you were rescued from the dominion of darkness and you were brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves. You are the spoils of war for God. It's really beautiful when you consider that the Exodus story is only partially about judging Egypt. Exodus 12.12 literally says that on the same night He will judge the gods of Egypt. You always thought of those things as figurative, but what if they're not? What if they're not at all? You know, in Deuteronomy 32, we don't have time to teach this, but I encourage you to look into it. In the very first verse, Moses says, listen, O heavens. Then he goes on to say, hear me, O earth. It's always like he's talking to two groups of people. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear you, earth, the words of my mouth. Normally in Hebrew parallelism, what you have are two exactly the same things said slightly differently. These are not the same, except that he has a family in both places. You know, in reading Deuteronomy 32, it's hard to get away from the Genesis 11 description. But I, I want to ask a couple questions. You remember Jethro? Any, not, not Jethro Bodine, you know. Ohad borrowed his overalls today, but that's not Jethro Bodine. I'm talking about Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. And he comes and he says, hey, hey, hey Moshe, um, look, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out. Uh, I mean, you need to delegate some things, right? Did he ever at any time tell Moses how many elders to go get? He really didn't. How many elders did Moses get, though? I wonder how Moses knew that. If you come to Monday nights or you buy us a cup of coffee sometime, we'd be happy to explain that to you. Other Jewish works commenting on the time period, other Semitic peoples, all the nations around, all understood that there was a Most High God, but He was surrounded by 70 spiritual beings that were the gods of the nations. You know, if you take that into mind, 
Then in a passage like 1 Samuel 26, where David says he's complaining to Saul, you've driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance, and you've said, go serve other gods. Nowhere in 1 Samuel 26 does anybody tell David to serve other gods. But in David's mind, to be driven out of the one place and the one people on the planet that God said was his heritage was an invitation to serve the gods of whose land he was in. Or if you look at 2 Kings 5 sometimes, you remember a leprous guy named Naaman? So, so Naaman shows up and you know the whole deal. He's upset because the prophet doesn't come out and do something amazing until, of course, he gets healed. It's like people are never that impressed with us until they see the results. <laughs> yeah. I better just move on. Do you know what the one thing that Naaman asked for before he left to go back to his own country? Two mules and as much dirt as he could carry. What a strange thing. He pledged that he would only sacrifice to the Lord, the God of Israel. And apparently he wanted to do it while standing on the soil that was Israel. See, these statements have no meaning until you understand that there's some spiritual geography going on. God picked a nation and he said, you know what? In Genesis 6, all of the world rebelled. Uh, we wiped it out. In Genesis 11, all of the world rebelled. You know what? I'm going to bring a nation of my own into existence. In that nation, I will work as my heritage. Makes it even more special than that the king of that nation sends us to the other nations to get them. But we're ahead of the story. Let us go to Deuteronomy 4. Are y'all interested in what we're sharing? Good, because I've got a little ways to go to get to what we need to get to. If Jennifer would stop distracting me on the front row. Deuteronomy 4.19, and he's speaking to Israelites. When you, you Israelites, look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. See, if you set Deuteronomy 32 and Deuteronomy 4 side by side, what you find out is God said, Israel is my inheritance and I'm theirs. The rest of the nations, I'm going to let you go your own way. In Genesis 6, you fouled things up. In Genesis 11, you fouled things up. I'm going to pick one specific people group and I will work among them and then we'll get back around to you. It's almost like the first couple chapters of Romans where people are so intent on their sin that He gives them over to their sin to be taught not to sin. It's an interesting concept. You might just write for your notes. Is that okay? Can I just, can I annotate something for you? Write down Acts 14, 15 through 17. Then write down Acts 17, 29 through 31. Now let me tell you the point of both of those passages. Paul, when speaking to Gentiles, says things like Acts 14, 16, in the past he let all nations go their own way. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? In the past, he let them all go their own way. Acts 17, in verse 30, speaking to Gentiles. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance as this kind of idolatry. But now, he commands people everywhere to repent. God has picked a specific people group. He's instructed them. He expects more of them. The others, he's let run after whatever they want to until he can raise up his people 
to teach them better. You know what is really nasty? It's not Taco Bell in the morning. That is nasty. It's when one of God's special people acts as debase as anyone else. Again, I don't think I have time for this, so let me let me distill it for you. It's 2 Kings 21. You'll write down 1 through 6, but I'm simply going to pick up in verse 3. We're speaking of Manasseh. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry or heavenly host and worshipped them. Now when you thought of these things, you thought that these people were simply like astrologers and they're worshipping signs. What if it is so much more than that? What if they're worshipping lesser gods? What if they're worshipping created things? His inheritance should have been the God of Israel. And he should have been the heritage of the God of Israel. And instead, he is worshiping something else. So, well, I, I don't know what to think about that. That's okay. Travel a little bit. Go to India. Look at their national gods and tell me what those gods have done for those people. By the way, in verse 5, in both courts of the temple of Yahweh, or Jehovah, if you prefer. He built altars to all the starry or heavenly host. He went into God's temple where His name dwells, and He set up altars to lesser spiritual beings. Then He sacrificed His own Son in the fire. You remember the difference between fusion and fission? Fusion was the combining of things for the releasing of power. Fission was about breaking something apart and receiving a lesser power. Breaking away from the worship of Yahweh God to worship the Benai Ha Elohim, the sons of God, lesser spiritual beings. That's like radioactive fission. Breaking away, oh, I'm sure he got some kind of spiritual empowerment from it, but he got more radioactive waste than a man can handle. You know, everybody wants nuclear power because it, it's, it's supposed to be cheaper, it's supposed to be abundant, but nobody wants to be the state you, you store the waste in. This kind of radioactive fission is corrupting the heavens and corrupting the earth. The things that are in the heavens, the spiritual beings, they should not be doing this. And the kings on the earth should not be doing this. Y'all ready to go there? I mean, are y'all ready to get it? Let's go to Psalm 82. Would y'all prefer that we stop and sell the rest of the message for $19.99? Those prosperity pimps. Those ridiculous charlatans. When God gives you something for free, how could you charge people for it? Hey, Psalm 82. Beginning in verse 1, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among gods. By the word that, by the way, that word is Elohim. It's, it's like, is it God, G-O-D? Well, does it have a capital G or a lower G in English? That gives us some indication. In Hebrew, the only way that you know which Elohim we're talking about has to do with sentence structure, grammar, but mostly context. Here, God is speaking in an assembly of gods. 
Listen to what he says. And keep in mind that these guys are probably apportioned the nations. The nations probably are divided into 70 with 70 spiritual beings. And those spiritual beings are supposed to lead them to Yahweh and like Yahweh. And in verse 2 he says, How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Sounds like God's not very happy with these spiritual beings. Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I have stepped over dead bodies in India because the national gods have taught the people concepts so far from compassion it's unreal. Karma dictates that if you have no food and if you have broken legs and if you are in a terrible condition, then you might have done something that deserved that. And I don't want to get in the way of your purification. So so what if you're sleeping with rats? The teaching of foreign gods. In this setting... The Lord of hosts is upset with the heavenly beings because they do not lead like he leads. Verse 5, they know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Is he talking to the heavenly beings or is he talking about the people they rule over? Yes. The world is shaking, it's quaking, something is wrong because the people are being led wrongly. Verse 6, I have said you are gods, I have said you are Elohims. You are all sons of the Most High. Benaiha El Elyon. Again, you are sons of God. But you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. The word ruler here is sar. It's exactly for an astute Bible student, the same word in Daniel, when the prince of Persia, the prince of Grecia, fight with an unnamed angel and Michael has to help him. There are spiritual geographies. There are powers over those geographies. They all originated as God's creations and He called them sons. But the same way that there's a problem in humanity... There is a problem in the heavens. And God wants to purify both. He wants to fix both. You know, Isaiah, I would like to read many of them, but I cannot. Isaiah describes some pretty severe actions. Let's go to Isaiah 24, beginning in verse 21. Somebody say star power. We haven't forgotten about fusion and star power. I simply want you to have some building blocks to better understand what you're about to learn. You have no idea how much trust I have in you that 54 minutes in, I haven't near gotten to my point. I trust you. I trust that a generation that watched the movie Titanic can handle a sermon that's longer than 55 minutes with a point and a poem. Isaiah 24, verse 21. In that day... The Lord will punish the powers, plural, in the heavens, plural, above, and the kings on the earth below. God is going to punish the heavenly powers. They will be herded together like prisoners, bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. 
He did it in Genesis 6, according to 2 Peter. He did it in Genesis 6, according to Jude, verses 4 through 6. He did it before, and He'll do it again. God is not threatened by deviant spiritual powers. In fact, He's so secure that He'll let them do what they want to do until the time of His choosing to deal with them. The moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. Now, I wish I had time to tell you Israel is God's inheritance, that He rules both on a heavenly Mount Zion and very much in an earthly Jerusalem. I wish I had time to tell you that He's uniting the sons of God that are loyal with the sons of God on earth that are loyal. I wish I had time to tell you that heaven is going to envelop the earth and God's rule will be all in all. I don't have time to tell you that, so let me show you Isaiah 34. God knows how to clean house in the heavens. Somebody say star power. Isaiah 34, 4, all the stars, somebody say stars, all the stars of the heavens will be dissolved. And the sky rolled up like a scroll, all the starry or heavenly host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the Oh, God knows how to get down with the Benai Ha Elohim. He made them. He knows how to break them down. I mean, he can take them apart like a watch at any time that he chooses to. He simply has let them and the nations both go after what they wanted because he only wants sons that want him. He wants a kind of fusion. He wants us to want him and be merged with him so that he can unleash a beautiful power. I'm talking about a star power, y'all. You want to hear how the Bible says it? Let's go to Genesis 15. Now we can begin our actual message since you have some, some, uh, you have some idea what we're talking about. Have I told you that Monday nights are going to be good? Amen. That's where you can hear the rest of this story. Genesis 15. We're going to pick up with Abraham. Then the word of the Lord, this is verse 4. I mean, because if I were sharing with you verses 1 through 3, I'd have to tell you that the word of the Lord appeared visibly. I'd have to tell you that God can't be seen, but somehow or another His word could be seen. I'd have to explain that there was a connection between Genesis 15 and John 1, that there was always an invisible Yahweh, but there was always His personage, which somehow was visible as His, His word. And, uh, and we don't have time to tell you that. So we're going to pick up in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. It's nice that the word can show up. Like a, like, like a physical presence. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens. Somebody said, look up! Look up! And count the stars. He doesn't say look up or count the stars. He says look up and. There are two things that are happening. He's looking up at the heavens and he's counting the stars. If indeed you can count them. I love when God mocks a man. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now you have 
heard this all of your life and because you've heard it all of your life, you said, hey, Abraham counted the stars and, and there's going to be that many. But that's not quite what was said. What was actually said is look up at the heavens. Everybody tilt your head back. Look up. Look up at the heavens. So shall your offspring be. And count them. So shall your offspring be. There are two things at play. Abraham is being told that his offspring will be like the Benai Ha Elohim, the stars of heaven. Abraham, you won't be fallen forever. There's going to be a glorification, a deification, and angelification. You won't be mortal forever. You and all of your offspring. You know, this is so clear. Well, let me simply say, verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness that God repeats this promise to Abraham in 22.17. He repeats it to Isaac in 26.4. He repeats it about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Exodus 32.13. And the emphasis is on the multiplication in most of those. Because they had to grow into a nation and at this point they're just a family. But that's not where it started. It started as look up at the heavens. So shall your offspring be. God had picked one nation on earth, one man, one family that he was going to raise up as a spiritual being, a glorified being to fix his problem in the heavens and on the earth. And he was going to start with Abraham. This is why Hebrews eleven nineteen says Abraham's faith was in the resurrection. Have you ever wondered why he would have offered Isaac? Because the very promise that he believed was about inheriting an immortal spiritual body. That was the very promise that he believed. It was more than land. The land was part of the inheritance. It was more than being his people. That was part of the inheritance. Abraham's faith was in the salvation, sanctification, and glorification of all of his descendants. Now, I want you to think star power. I want you to think fusion with God's character. Abraham wasn't practicing fission. He was God's friend. He was learning to be like God. He was making mistakes but being corrected by a loving father. He was fusing who he was with who God is. And that unleashed a faith-filled power on the planet. But just in case you don't believe me, Genesis 37, verse 9. Then he had another dream because his brothers liked the first one so much. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father and all of his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down on the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. I want you to grasp something as we move on from this. No matter what you think about it, Jacob had absolutely no problem seeing the sun, the moon, and the stars as his family. He said, well, it's just a metaphor. It's just an allegory. Or 
He had been told the promise to Abraham that they would be like the starry realm anyway. He was always looking forward to the glorification of his children. So he understood the dream based on the word that had already been given. His problem was not that he was compared with the sun and his wife the moon and the children stars. His real objection was, is really one of my sons going to rise above all of the others? Okay. How about Balaam? Numbers 24, verse 17. Y'all still with me? You still doing okay? Numbers 24, 17. I see him. I see who? (laughs) I see that star. But not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise in Israel. Do you think that's just poetic language? Or do you think it's what God was always aiming at? He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. The star that rises out of Israel will make the nation strong. A ruler, a sar, will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. As this Revelation continues in the Tanakh. It's not just Abraham's family that is going to be glorified. One descendant in particular will rise above them all and strengthen them all. Somebody say star power. power. You want to see it in the Peshat? Anybody want to see it plainly said, simply said? Okay, Daniel 12. Let's look at verse 3. Are you all there? Daniel 12, verse 3. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Look, the context of Daniel 12 is the resurrection of the dead. And those who have fused with the Lord, those who are united with Him in righteousness, they shine like... Those who have united with Him, those who have fused with the wisdom that says, Fear the Lord in Him only, they will shine like the... Star power is fusion. You have to... Love what the Lord loves. You have to hate what the Lord hates. You have to be fused with His Word. Fused with His Spirit. You have to be united with Him in life. If you want to be united with Him in the resurrection that overcomes death. He has a problem in His heavenly family. He's got a problem in the earthly family as well. He's going to fix both and He uses one star that rises above all others to do it. Has anybody ever read Corinthians 15? You can just flip there real quickly. People think that the gospel, man, the gospel that Paul preached is laid out in Corinthians 15 and they're right, but they truncate it. They say, hey, Jesus died and he was resurrected. Amen, the gospel. That is not the gospel. The entire chapter is the gospel. And it goes on to explain the actual process of the resurrection of the dead. I'm going to pick up with you in the 41st verse. The sun has one kind of splendor. I wonder why he picked this. The moon, another. 
and stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with thee resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown perishable that is raised imperishable. This chapter teaches that you were born in the image of Adam, corruptible, clay, broken. But now you will bear the image of the man from heaven. You will be of the substance of heaven. Abraham's children will become like the stars. I want to be fused with Christ. Now, there are enough people that practice vision. They break off a piece of Christ that they like. Hey, God loves his sons, y'all. And he loves his sons so much that he wants to prosper you. That is a truth. But when you break it off from the whole, it produces radioactive material like greed. It produces prosperity pimps. It produces a peddling of the gospel. There are so many truths that when you break it away from the whole, it's not that it has no power. It's that it produces more waste than power. We want a fusion with the whole character of God, not a fission. Hey, let's go to Revelation. Can y'all tell we're starting to near an end? Revelation twenty-two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel. That's right. They work for him. Send them around. They're not over him. He's over them. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Jesus is repeatedly referred to as the bright morning star. Of all the stars, He's the brightest. Of all the heavenly beings, He's the highest. But the first couple chapters of Revelation referred to the seven churches as stars in His hand. That's because the churches are being fused with Him, united with Him. He is dwelling in them. The seven lampstands of God were in them, and so they're like proto-stars. He sees them as stars because that's what they're becoming. It's star power. You know what my favorite picture in the book of Revelation is, though? It's got to be Revelation 12. Let's go to Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1. Y'all don't get weary on me now. Y'all, sometimes young girls, they do get weary. You got to put a new dress. I'm talking about a heavenly dress, not Motown. It's Charlie's fault. He listened to Motown 40 years ago, and somehow or another, that has to relate to me. Revelation 12 and verse 1. A great and wondrous. You have to love those kind of descriptors. Great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon, under her feet, with the sun and moon, uh, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Why do I like this picture? Because this is Israel pictured as a bride. And a bride that is glorified. A bride that has reached the destiny that Abraham was told about. All of her sons, the twelve tribes, have reached their star power. They are glorified along with 
national Israel. They have produced a Messiah. They have come into Messiah. They are now glorified in taking on the enemy. Now, Revelation 12 has many facets to it. But if you get nothing else, the beautiful glorified bride is the goal of the entire book. Can we get to some very practical things for you in our last couple scriptures? We're going to be in Philippians 2 for a minute. Are you still thinking about all the powers in the heavens? If you're not, then you didn't understand what I said. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why is this not such a greasy grace? Why is this not such a uh, lift a pinky kind of salvation? Why do you have to work it out with fear and trembling? Because so much is at stake. Because God intends to use His earthly family glorified to set everything right in the heavens and on the earth. In fact, look at how He hints at that here. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Not just to save you. Not just to bless you, to act according to His will, according to His purpose for your life. Verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become, somebody say become, become. blameless and pure <clears throat> children of God. I wonder if you were speaking Hebrew, would that not be something like Benai Ha Elohim? Without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. It was crooked in the heavens and it's crooked on the earth. He's looking for those he can work in, fuse with, to perfect them. In which you shine like stars in the universe. As you hold out the word of life. The word was with God in the beginning. The word is God. The Word was God. The Word will always be God. And the only way you shine is to hold out the Word. In order that I might not boast, that I might, that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Look, I want to submit to you that arguing, that complaining, well, that's fission. When you cannot get along with those that are being bonded with God. When you must find distinction. When you must find difference. And it's not God that's highlighting it. It's you that's highlighting it. When, <laughs> you wouldn't believe the phone calls that I receive in a week. Uh, your teachings come from the Kabbalah. Okay, well, I've never read the Kabbalah, but I can give you five first century sources. Would that be okay? The star on your arm is clearly demonic. Yeah, 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 clearly stars. Got nothing to do with what we're called to, to do. You wouldn't believe what I get in a week. I want to tell you it's fission. It's not that it doesn't have power. It's that it produces so much radioactive waste, you don't want to live near it. But bonding with who God is, uniting with who He is, man, that produces a whole different kind of power that leaves no radioactive waste. There is power in the unity of the saints when our unity is based on His character. 
Do you know that you have to shine like stars? Because 1 Corinthians 6.3 says, don't you know you're going <clears> to <throat> judge the angels? So you got no problem knowing that Jesus Christ has angels that work for him. But here's the thing. He is a model of what you are to become. You, like him, are a human that rays into the spiritual realm, glorified by God with angels and powers in subjection to you. Do you know that Revelation says many times you will rule the nations? You become God's counsel, his governing rulership. He's the author of everything, but he uses you to do things. Why is it important that we handle ourselves well now? Well, if you look up in the heavens, you'll see some powers that didn't, and so they've lost their position. If you look on the earth, you see people who aren't handling it well, so they will never gain the position that God has aimed them at. No matter how saved they say they are, or how sanctified they think they are, you will not arrive at God's governance of the nations if you don't practice fusion with Him. It's almost like when we read Ephesians 1.18 and we mention His glorious inheritance in the saints. It's almost like He has a heritage for you. It's almost like when He purchased you, He wanted you to become something. That's what He gets out of this. It's almost like when we read Ephesians 1.18 that the power that is exerted in Christ is available for you because He wants you to become what Christ is. It's almost like Christ became a model of what it is to be a saved, sanctified man who becomes glorified. Star power that places above the angels, above the B'nai Ha Elohim, Above any other things. And by the way, the Bible says that you are seated with Christ. Are you beginning to get an idea how high you are called? So when the pastors are preaching about momentum. Man, you're going to have to build some momentum, aren't you? You have time for our last two scriptures? Are you sure? I mean, it's raining outside. I don't want you to melt. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5. It is not to angels that He has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. You know why it's not to angels that He subjected the world? Because it is to Christ and the body of Christ. The world to come is in subjection, not to renegade heavenly powers, but to loyal Faithful, chosen followers of Jesus Christ. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. He goes on to clarify. In putting everything under Him, God left nothing that was not subject to Him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to Him. But we see Jesus. Friends, we see a human being raised to the right hand of God, glorified. He's more than a human being, 
But he was born as a human being, showing you what your destiny is. We are not just called to be saved. We are called to be sanctified and then glorified. There has to be momentum in the kingdom that carries you into the heights of your actual calling. Jesus is the King of Israel and Jesus personifies the inheritance and heritage of the Lord. The incomparable power that was modeled in Him is a kind of fusion. He did what the Father did. He said what the Father said. That's why He had unlimited power. But that power is for us who believe. Tell me what you don't have the power to do and I will tell you where you are not united with Christ enough. Do you want fusion with Him? He is the example of star power. He's above the heavenly realms, above all rule, above all authority, power, dominion, and title. And He is calling you to that height with Him. I want to finish Ephesians 5.10. I'm sorry, Ephesians 2.10. In bringing many sons to glory. That's what He's doing. He's bringing you to glorification. In bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Jesus Christ is of the earthly family, born on earth, and He has been raised into the heavenly family, even its heights, and He actually will merge the two. Which is why it says, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Which congregation? The congregation in the heavenly mountain or the congregation on the earthly mountain? Or the day when they merge? There will be one family. And God is teaching the heavenly powers a lesson through the faithfulness of the weak, pitiful, pitiable, pathetic jars of clay that depend on His power and so He makes us more than we are. This is very much like the parable of the talents. Those that were given so much did not do what they were supposed to with it. And those that were given little Make more with it. Friends, I simply want you to know that the Lord is purifying the heavens and the earth. He has chosen man as His ruling agency. He specifically chosen Israel and the mysterious graft-ins. There will only be one loyal family. And it will be fueled by fusion star power. With God. In fact, it will transform our bodies into that magical container that can hold fusion full time. Our very last scripture as Peyton comes here, and we'll put it on the screen for you. We're an hour and 22 minutes in. That's better than I normally do. 2 Peter 1 4. I want you to cont- contemplate this. 
Because as much as we're giving you a glimpse into the heavenlies and we're going to do it more and more. And we're going to explain heavenly powers more and more. I'm most concerned with your destiny. I'm most concerned with the heights that you do or don't rise to. I'm most concerned that you become the inheritance of the Lord. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, such as Genesis 15, 4 through 6. Look up at the heavens, so shall your offspring be. Heavenly, sons of God. So that through them, through those promises, you may participate, or I'm going to say, fuse with. Participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by its evil desires. I want you to know that if you look around in your life and you see radioactive material, relationships that weren't broken over righteousness, they were broken over unrighteousness. When you see that you took a godly principle but did an ungodly thing with it, this is all vision. It does, it does release some power. Unfortunately, it leaves such a destructive waste product that nobody can live around it. It's not hard to find out where you've been practicing fission rather than fusion. Because fusion leaves no waste product. It's pure. It's blameless. It's what we're called to shine with the Word of God. Doesn't mean a trouble-free life. The sun is surrounded by darkness, but it's not affected by it. I'm asking you to examine the heights to which you're called. 15 to 20 times in the blatant Peshat, God calls Israel His inheritance as opposed to every other nation. Do you know what a miracle it is that you could be included in that? because he always cared about every nation but he had to start with somebody I'm going to tell you today he wants to start with you in the room the answer to unlimited power over problems is you fusing with the very nature of Christ anywhere you see separation oh it may feel powerful for a minute I said something ugly to a guy that was being mean to Jim I made fun of his hair he threatened me physically and so see you have a really cute haircut it felt great I was telling Caleb about it it felt like empowering the problem is is it left me with this radioactive residue because I know that's not what Christ does I know I didn't need to be done I knew that it was birthed of me it's not that it was entirely wrong I mean He was wicked. He was threatening. He was all... But this is the difference between fission and fusion. It all feels like power. The question is, is it pure? Man, do you want to be pure, blameless children of God? As we get ready to worship, find the degrees of separation where it was based loosely on something godly, but you know by its byproduct you didn't do it right. Ask the Lord to help you fuse with His divine nature to 
Well, why don't we pray what Paul did? I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order to know the hope to which you were called. When you understand what he's aiming at for your life, you won't settle for less. Would you stand to your feet as we pray? Father, we are asking you here. We are asking you now. Open our eyes. No more low living. No more backsliding. No more, mighty God. We aim for the heights you have designed us for. Invest your character in us now. We depend on you.